1: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: On this episode of Newt's World, I'm joined by my good friend, former congressman and psychologist, Dr. Tim Murphy. And he's here to discuss his new book, The Christ Cure, 10 Biblical Ways to Heal from Trauma, Tragedy and PTSD. As a licensed psychologist specializing in resilience and recovery from psychological trauma, he consults on mental health and public policy with national organizations and speaks extensively throughout the United States. His new book, The Christ Cure, is a valuable guide for anyone dealing with PTSD, trauma and tragedy, the family members of trauma victims, clergy who seek a better understanding of psychology and for counselors who seek a better understanding of the role of faith in healing from trauma. Inspired by the life and works of the Apostle Paul, himself a survivor of multiple traumas, by modern day mentors, by his own humbling personal experiences, and reinforced by solid scientific research, The Christ Cure provides a handbook of healing for victims of trauma. So I'm really pleased to welcome Dr. Tim Murphy. Tim, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World.
3: Absolutely great to be with you, Mr. Speaker. It's hard for me to not call you that, so.
2: Well, Newt seems to work okay, though. But I appreciate it. It certainly was a great honor to serve as Speaker. How did you decide to become a psychologist? What attracted you to that?
3: That decision made some decades ago, and I think much of that related to, I grew up in a family of 11 children. And so you find in a family that you're oftentimes working to settle arguments and disagreements. And to be candid, an alcoholic father and sometimes a very unpleasant household experience sometimes got physical and sometimes got violent. And it was a matter of when I went into college, wanting to help others heal in the process too and dealing with stress and trauma. I had a great affinity working with children, adolescents, and young adults, and that's now transferred over to working exclusively with adults. But it was this drive to help other people understand and uh, survive the pains they've been through and to become better people.
2: And you did this from a background of having gotten your B.A. from Wheeling Jesuit University and then going on to Cleveland State for an M.A. and then getting a Ph.D. from the University of Pittsburgh. That's quite an experience. What did you take from having gone to a Jesuit university?
3: And I also went to Jesuit high school. Those two really teach lessons of discernment and that is you don't just take things and memorize them i remember having encounters with one of the priests where he was commenting on a subject and i was the young student raising my hand and wanted to comment and father didn't take too kindly to that as he held his hand up and said mr murphy sit down or just ease up but i raised it a couple of times and he finally i think somewhat aggravated says what do you want and i said well i like to comment on what you're saying and he very clearly said you will have a comment. I expect you to have an opinion, but you will not have any opinion until you know the material. Otherwise, I'll bring up to the front of the class and you can start teaching it. A bit embarrassing. But that is the style that I learned, that you had to really thoroughly look at things. That is, continue to both be a hindrance and a help, a blessing and a curse. As I've gone through, I remember my years in Congress and as a state senator, pushing people to always get me more information. I felt if you couldn't argue both sides of an issue, you didn't know the issue. And so those were all invaluable to me, and that's the way it continued to drive me to learn more and more and more. Sometimes drive myself nuts with it, but drive me to learn more.
2: Well, in in addition to your academic background, you spent eight years as an officer in the Medical Service Corps of the U.S. Navy getting to be a commander, and you worked on the staff in the Inpatient Traumatic Brain Injury PTSD unit at Walter Reed. That has to have been... Just an astonishing experience.
3: It was incredible. I'd actually joined the Navy while I was in Congress because I felt very strongly if I'm voting to send these men and women to war and I have a skill set that is valuable, I'd like to be able to use that. Really, it's all volunteer. You cannot get paid while you're in political office and also serving. It came from a dinner once I had sitting next to the Chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, and we talked about how I tried to join the Navy early in life, but they didn't need psychologists, and he said, well, we need them now. And nine months later, I'm standing on the hangar deck of the USS Eisenhower in Norfolk taking the oath of office, being able to work at Walter Reed with real heroes, people who have suffered terrible injuries in war, and quite frankly, some of them were accidents that occurred in training or on base, sometimes men and women who could barely talk, barely walk, but we're helping them to come back into a rich life, do the best they can. Um, it was a phenomenal experience. And quite frankly, sometimes when I would go there and I'd be with someone who was struggling even to take a step or even to button a button or sip some water, someone who had been in horrific battles and lost friends in that too, and also not only the brain injury they had, but the aspects of the psychological trauma and trying to heal from that. And then to go back to the Capitol sometimes and hear the noise of people all upset about things. And I'd say, that's not a real problem. I just left up the road in Bethesda, men and women with real problems. Can we get back to the planet and understand what matters? And I say, in addition to that, in the Navy, I had the honor of serving on a couple of aircraft carriers, the Reagan, the Roosevelt, the Vincent, and also do some Navy special warfare training too. It's just amazing, amazing people we have in the military. And what a humbling honor it was to be allowed to be part of that for a while.
2: Did that change your views of things? I mean, did you find that both the experience at Walter Reed and the experience on the carriers gave you a different perspective than you would have had if you'd never done it?
3: No question about it. I mean, I remember times, well, let me backtrack a little bit. I was injured in a rollover accident in Iraq, not as a member of the military, but that was my first tour of the medical system in Iraq. I call it the horizontal tour because I was strapped to a litter and a gurney and helicopter, and then flown over to Germany. But what I wanted to do, when they let me be mobile again, was to walk around and see some of the patients. And there and at Walter Reed to see people with awful wounds and to think, wow, this person has done this for us. They would have a flag in the room where they're clutching to the flag or something else there. Or their loved ones are around. And when you see these things visually, it just not quite breaks your heart, but it inspires your heart to see what people are willing to do. And quite frankly, those aspects and to see how faith helped them in their healing process were just eye-opening and humbling.
2: Even before you got to Congress, you were actively involved. And as I remember, you, as a Pennsylvania state senator, chaired the Aging and Youth Committee, and you ultimately authored the Managed Care Reform Act.
3: Yeah, I did. When I went into state senate, I was doing well. I had a private practice. I worked at some hospitals in Pittsburgh and faculty of the School of Medicine, University of Pittsburgh, I knew that health insurance and managed care was running into some problems, that it was not being operated by the doctor-patient relationship. Instead, what was happening is insurance companies were coming in and basically setting up a mother-may-I approach. To go to the emergency room, you had to get permission. You could drive right by an emergency room, but you had to go to another one where they had a contract. It became really a process of managed money. And my bill was designed to help put patients and doctors back in charge. Look, we need accountability. We need visibility. We need all those things. But what was, I saw hurting people was the patient was out of the process. The doctor was out of the process. And I wanted to make sure that they were brought back in. It, it came out of the state senate by unanimous vote. It came out strongly of the House, too. It made some big changes in Pennsylvania. But you know, when you battle for a bill, it, you get a lot of scars in the process.
2: Did you find the state legislature sort of like the Congress or substantially different?
3: Substantially different. It was calmer. We had 50 people in the state Senate, got to know them all. Some of them became great friends. You spend more time with each other, a lot more deliberation on things. There's a calmness of the approach. Whereas in Congress, you really are operating moment to moment, not more people, larger constituency, having to be responsive right away. And of course, being on a four-year cycle in the state Senate, Versus a two year cycle in Congress. The state Senate, you could talk more, calmly work through things, build on legislation over time in the House, not only because it's so large, but really the atmosphere of working so much with media on a national and international basis, always watching hundreds of reporters looking for stories, hundreds of members trying to have their interests represented in their states. Fascinating to learn about the nation from everybody and from all corners of the nation. It was incredible. Learning experience, but a different mood, a different process.
4: When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Store on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I noticed that very early you were committed to recognizing that suicide has become a huge problem. It seems to me that somewhere between drug overdoses and suicide, we're in a real crisis for younger Americans. What's your sense of that?
3: Well, younger Americans, suicide and accidents are the number one cause of death. And many of those accidents are probably suicidal or related to drug use. And Drug use is also some of the recklessness, the lack of awareness of the world and that many adolescents have. Also, depression and anxiety rates have doubled, especially since covid They've always been a struggle for young adults, but they've lost so much of their mentors, so much of their structure. This has been a problem. If you look at the suicide rates over the last couple of decades, we've had more people lost to suicides than we have. We've had more people lost to suicides in the last few decades than we've had U.S. soldiers who've been killed in World War I, World War II, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan. We've had more soldiers and veterans die after Afghanistan and Iraq than died in the war. It is sad that the state is what's happening. Is people who reach that point of despair feel a sense of hopelessness, helplessness. They feel alone. They feel that others can't understand. They feel there's no one who loves them, nowhere to go. It's a desperate situation for them. I know there is hope for them, but helping them to realize and recognize that is a growing problem in our country, especially among youth.
2: Why do you think it's become so much worse?
3: Well, I think that youth really benefited from structure. We know that there's good reason why there are so many laws that restrict things for youth. You can't get a license till you're sixteen. You can't drink till you're twenty-one. You can't vote till you're eighteen. Heck, you can't even get a tattoo till you're eighteen. There's so many other aspects, and that's because we recognize that what happens with youth, they're not mature and ready to do things. Their brain, which is controlled mostly by what's called the limbic system, a central part that deals with emotions. Is far more advanced during the adolescent years than their frontal lobe as they get to be adults 25 and up. So we have more control over the front part of our brain, which looks at the future, which weighs consequences when thinks about things. And so with some of the impulsiveness and other aspects of the youth, the way they think, as they respond more strongly, more intensely and more quickly to their emotions. But what has also happened is they've lost a lot of structure. There is a great benefit to have responsible adults in the lives of youth to guide them, to mentor them, and quite frankly, sometimes to say no. When you look at those people, for example, who have been shooters, mass shootings at some schools and other places, what you can find is when it's a young adult, 18 to 24 or so, is one of the characteristics they have is they do not have a stable adult youth relationship in their life. You can see that coming. Those are things that have come out of the FBI studies and Secret Service studies that that is a great factor to help them buffer that. But when institutions are under attack, schools are under attack, respect for teachers is under attack, respect for parents is under attack, pushing youth to mature before they're ready, having social media, which is not just a matter of bullying them, but just the whims of the moment, having to wear the right thing, do the right thing, shift and pivot, without having adults also to help encourage and monitor and bounce ideas off of, those have been part of the struggle that our youth have that have contributed to more of the stress and anxiety that they feel is overwhelming.
2: One of the reasons I really wanted to have this conversation with you, that you go from what you normally think of as a pretty secular profession. And now here you are writing a book called The Christ Cure, which I think is fascinating. How did you get to that? What was it that led you to that line of thought?
3: Well, of course I was raised as a Christian, or as some say I'm still working at it. <laughs> we all are still working at it. And there was certainly valuable lessons from there. But when I left off, as I was depressed in a horrible state, I never was gonna hurt myself. But when you wake up the morning cursing the sunrise and saying, I don't want to live anymore because life has been awful, much of my own doing, I had to seek some ways to recover from that. Now I know in my work as a psychologist, helping people with PTSD and trauma, we talk a lot about the healing aspects of psychological and psychotherapy. Talk therapy can be very helpful. But I also recall very distinctly that in the halls of Walter Reed, particularly in our unit, 7 of the PTSD TBI unit, when the priests came around, when the clergy came around, when the friars came around, the prayers they offered and discussing things was very valuable to them. Doing research about healing from PTSD, we find that, for example, through the VA, a year out or so treatment, two-thirds of people who have with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, still have clinical symptoms of the diagnosis a year out, two years out. There is a distinction, however, for those who have a strong faith. And what I started doing is asking clients, I'm back in practice now and really asking myself too, are you a member of a certain religion? Are you a believer, religion, spirituality? And can we talk about those things in the process? What I also had to do is study it more. So I began to read a lot more of the Bible and looking to see, here is this apostle Paul. The traumas he've had are amazing. Just run through a few. So here he is a guy who he's a Pharisaic Jew who believes that Jesus is not the Messiah and that to identify him as the Messiah, that's a threat to Judaism. And of course, they're very cognizant of that because saying, hey, every time we turn away from our mission, we get sent out here for 70 years or here for 60 years or floods or famine or whatever comes to us. So we got to protect this. And he became one of the big enforcers. He was the tough guy. He was the guy. And he gets these papers to go off to Damascus where he's, uh, he's been in this business of even watching and participating in stonings of what he calls the Nazarenes, but people believe Jesus is the Messiah. And he has this bright light and this voice that says, why are you persecuting me? In that moment, he switches from being a Jew to being now a Jew who believes that there is a Messiah. That's a big change. So the people who were on his side before are now saying, hey, wait a minute, you turned on us. And the people who he used to hunt down and arrest and see them imprisoned and see them killed, now he's turning towards them. So he's blinded. He has to recover from that over the next few years. He is lashed with the whip, 39 lashes, five times. He's beaten with rods three times. He's stoned one time to death, left for dead. He crawls back into the synagogue, continues to preach. He has to run out of towns. He's escaping attacks. He's robbed. He's beaten. He's hungry. He's tired. He's even out at a ship at sea in the Mediterranean for a couple weeks. The ship is barely sticking together in the storms. It finally collapses. He floats around for a day and a half on a piece of wood in the Mediterranean, he gets bitten by a snake, he's sentenced to death, he spends time in a Roman prison. The list goes on and on. And I'm reading this and thinking, wow, he should have had every symptom of PTSD. He should have had sleep problems, anxiety attacks, intense depression, suicidal, alcoholic, you name it, he should have had it, but he didn't. And so I started looking for a book about this. And as it turns out, nobody had written one that some people suggested he might've had PTSD because he said in one part, he says, I have a thorn in my side that keeps me humble. I'm thinking, but that's not the same. So I did my research and looking at this and that began to emerge into this book, The Christ Cure, and using his writings and readings to look at what I think are four important stages in how he really dealt with trauma. To loop that back in this point, people who are dealing with PTSD, those who embrace and are religious, not just believe in God, but really are religious and practice, have a much better prognosis. And now I ask my clients, is, can we incorporate this in our discussions? And even those that say, well, I'm agnostic, but okay. We learn a lot as discussions of the stories in the Bible, the lessons there, because the Bible is basically a collection of people who have had terrible troubles in their life, but have been forgiven and been redeemed. Those who have <laughs> ask for forgiveness, those who've moved towards that. So I think that's a valuable lesson, and it's one that really became the book. And I say in the process of this, I'm not a biblical scholar. So what was happening is I would sit down to write, and these things would just come out. Now I'm not trying to say I was somehow possessed by the Holy Spirit here, but I am saying that I don't know where some of this came from. It just began to flow in this, and the results is this book.
2: So do you find now that you've been through this that you actually make the religious experience, an integral part of your practice?
3: I do. Not to the sense I'm trying to convert anybody or have them born again or baptized or anything, but it starts off as stories and lessons. And so there's various elements of that. The first stage we all need is that of resilience before any problem happens to us. We have to make sure that we're looking at things like building our strength, getting a sense of self-discipline, a strong commitment to that building our humility, having goals and plans. Those are all part of the resilience. The military has resilience. Whatever career we're working in, you have to have resilience. If we don't have that, when trauma hits, we're going to struggle a lot more. And so what I'll do is in the process of this, I'll use biblical stories, as well as ask the person about stories in their own life to share and say, you know, there's something that's been written about that. Now, it's not all the time. I'm not heavy handed with this, but it's saying there's something else there. The other aspect then is in resistance is the skill set you need in the fight. When trauma hits you, and trauma hits on three different levels, but when trauma hits you, you got to have a way of fighting back. And this is where Paul was great at this. He talked about endurance. He talked about persistence. He talked about courage. You have to have a sense of community. And you have to be vigilant over our vulnerabilities and those were things he brought into situations, which helped him immensely. And of course, always his faith and turning towards it, even in the midst of suffering, when he was recovering and dealing with suffering. A big difference between people who have religion and spirituality and faith and those who do not is you have hope. When I'm talking with someone who says I'm an atheist or I don't believe the question I ask of them is, then where do you go for hope? Where do you go? And they say, I don't know. I just kind of look at day to day and that's how it goes on. But there's nothing over the horizon. There's nothing there for them. So I do incorporate these lessons, which I write about in The Christ Cure, to help people say, look, you're not the only one. I'm not the only one. I know what it's like to really, as I say, curse the sunrise because I didn't want to get up again. But there's other people who have gone through this and ways that you can really be what Paul writes in Romans 12:2 to be transformed by a renewing of the mind. Powerful.
4: And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Interestingly, though, you also emphasize the physical side, that taking care of your body is integral to taking care of your mind
3: it has to be there we know there's massive amounts of research now that i use the acronym faster because when i was the navy actually my captain says hey you're going to give a lecture on suicide resilience in about three hours so come up with something so what came to me was fitness those who are physically fit regular strength and cardio training it is a great treatment and resilience against depression In many cases, it is as effective or more effective than medication. Medication can be very effective for some people. It may change how you feel. It doesn't change how you think. It doesn't change your body. But we know that when a person is traumatized, the stress hormones that go onto the body cause a number of problems. It causes inflammation in the brain and joints. They get more achy. They don't want to exercise. They can put on weight. They take some medications, put on weight too. And the real treatment for that, the frontline offense against it, is get up and move. But when a person is traumatized, they don't want to move, but you got to. So the idea of doing three or four days a week, walking brisk pace, doing some strength training is without a doubt extremely important. One of the reasons that many people when they leave the service crash on this is they stop their physical training. And with that, then they're losing these aspects. Another part is sleep, having regular Sleep of seven to nine hours is important. Now, I should say sleep is very difficult for some with post-traumatic stress. That's one of the signs and symptoms that sleep is very disrupted with nightmares, with having trouble going to sleep, having trouble waking up, sleeping too much, waking up a lot during the night. But that's a big part of it. Diet is also very important. Nutrition. When we are struggling with trauma and psychological distress, what do we do? We eat junk food. Burgers, the potato chips, eating a whole bag of Oreos, all those things that go with it. Disastrous for us physically because all of these things end up contributing more to the physical problems that lead to the sensation which we then may label as depression and anxiety. And if I could elaborate on that, when we first face a trauma, I call it trauma in triplicate. When we first face a trauma, there is the immediate aspect there, which can give us almost a flashbulb memory where we can remember where we were, what we were doing, what the smell, sights, sounds, tastes, everything was at that time. Pretty amazing when you talk to someone who's been through a traumatic experience, an auto accident or being told their diagnosis or being in war or whatever, remember a lot of details. The second level, but that's past. Can't do anything about that. That's over. The second level is what happens, what we call a loop memory. We go over and over and over and over it. And quite frankly, some people after tragedy and trauma may practice the trauma tens of thousands of times. Now, you do anything that many times, you're going to get pretty good at it. But what we're really doing is forming these fiber tracks in our brain, which I say it's akin to, if you go out west in the United States, you can still see the Oregon Trail. You can still see the wagon ruts. There's been no covered wagons there for a century. You can still see them. And think of your brain like that. The more we rehearse the trauma the worse it gets for us. The third thing, though, is we have what I call a reaction reaction. That is now we feel the sensations of depression, and anxiety, and we're reacting to them. Gee, I feel tired. I can't get moving. I feel sad. I don't want to be around people. Well, wow, this must mean I'm really sick. I can't get better. Oh, no, if I can't get better, my whole life is doomed. It's hopeless. And so we get caught up in that with more panic. We can't do anything about the first part, the first trauma. But we can definitely change the second one and the third one. And this is where my book comes in to help.
2: When you have a traumatic experience or when you start to slide into depression, to the degree that you can reinvest yourself in faith and invest yourself in exercise, those two steps can make a dramatic difference in the likelihood of you coming out of whatever has been bothering you.
3: That's a fair assessment. And even as we look at the Apostle Paul, he walked tens of thousands of miles. But he also had this really cool thing. He was a tent maker. So he made his money to get by. When he was in Corinth, there's this isthmus that's there that ships would drop off their goods at one end. This I think about a four-mile, very short area. The ships would then travel around because these are treacherous waters off of Greece, the Aegean Sea and, and the like. And so they'd leave their cargo there. The ship would go around. They'd want to lose their cargo. But as the goods were then being transferred over this area... He had a lot of people around who looked for entertainment. And so they had these things every two years called the Isthmian Games, kind of like the Olympics. Olympics were every four years. Ist- Isthmian Games were there. And Paul would watch these people train, the boxers, the wrestlers, the racers, something else called Pankration, which was like a cage fight without rules. And he would see this, and he would noted all the training people went through. And he would say, you can't just train to shadow box. You have to train to win. And he developed this incredible passion for making sure we're committed to being physically healthy, the the body being the temple of the Lord. But it is the other part that it is, when I talk about faith, it isn't just an action to go towards it. Faith is really an acceptance. So we may embrace our hope. We may embrace our recovery, embrace forgiveness and, and guilt. But faith is something different. Faith is something that, some people use the word surrender, but it really is accepting that with faith, it's accepting that God exists. You also accept trust, which accepts that God is there for you. Even in the things we do not understand, that God is there for us. Whatever is happening, there is a reason for it. We may not know what it is. And that even trust that prayers are answered. Sometimes they're not answered yes, sometimes they're answered no, and sometimes they're answered not yet, but they're there. The third part of this acceptance is accepting grace, that we're loved. That when we feel alone, that no one cares about us, that no one loves us. It's a pretty cool thing to realize we always have been loved. We're never going to be abandoned. No matter what we do, there's always the love of God with us. And when someone accepts that, it carries them through those times of the incredible loneliness and despair of trauma and depression. And the fourth part of acceptance is that we have a mission. We have something we need to do to work on ourselves, to help other people as well. So you combine those aspects, and that's where a person with trauma and recovery has a purpose. And very often what we feel is there's nothing I can do. I'm lost. I've lost my job. I lost my spouse. I lost this, whatever. Lost my friends. And the answer with faith is, no, you haven't. There's things all along you can do, and it gives you that meaning and purpose in life, which is a fundamentally important part of recovery and renewal.
2: It's an amazing journey you've been on it. In a way, I can sort of see circular from your Jesuit high school that in a way it's come back full circle. But in another way, you really have created sort of a pioneering look that's really very different from much of modern psychology.
3: This is different. When you look at people who are counselors, psychotherapists, psychologists, etc., that what is trended is that about a third of them say they don't believe in God and they don't talk about it at all. About 52 53% say they're uncomfortable talking about it Because we're also taught don't talk about politics and religion in the counseling session. And the rest are willing to talk about it and some even encourage you to talk about it. But I think, wait a minute. The majority of people who identify as being religious and spiritual, when you survey them, the majority, 60, 70 percent say, would like it if my therapist talked about it. I mean, this is what they do. This is when they go to church and with standing or kneeling or prostrate, whatever it is, when they're struggling, they pray. They want help. And if the therapist doesn't want to talk about it, then they think, I guess this is taboo. Similarly, I might say clergy, about 40% of people who are struggling deeply with psychological issues will turn towards clergy, priests, rabbis, pastors, whatever. But only about 10% of clergy say they feel comfortable counseling, understanding the psychological principles that go with it. My book is there to help both. Not only help those who have been traumatized and the people who love them, but for counselors and clergy to learn how to do it. It is different. It's not politically correct, but it is psychologically correct. We live in a world now where people are very worried about all the phobias we have. Well, we've also got a Christophobia now. We have people who are openly attacking people's religion and faith. We have the FBI investigating churches. Oh, please. This is our respite. This is where people go to try and heal in a world that is always attacking. This is something that I hope that other counselors will turn towards, too, to say, well, how do I do this? How do I talk about faith in the context of this? Not to convert people, but to say there is a lot of parallel here that even the basics of psychology, one of the things that's out there is something called cognitive behavior therapy. And this was a discovery by some therapists decades ago who said if you change the way you think, you can change the way you feel and then change the way you behave. And William James talked about this even in the early part of the 20th century. But what happens is if you go back What I quoted before, when Paul says to be transformed by a renewing of the mind, he said that over 2,000 years ago. When you look at 1,000 years before that, Solomon, in writing Ecclesiastes, talked about, hey, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. you got to adjust. you got to think. The lessons go through there. So it's not that by suppressing or ignoring the aspects of faith in the counseling process, we're really ignoring thousands of years of human experience to say it makes a difference. So I'm hoping that... Colleagues in the field of counseling will be more willing to look at this and embrace it instead of running away from it.
2: I want to thank you. I think you're being a pretty courageous pioneer. I think your new book really reminds us that there's hope for recovery for those dealing with trauma and PTSD and for their families. And I think that the insights you shared both in your book and today will both uplift and encourage people. And I want to recommend everyone get a copy of The Christ Cure 10 Biblical Ways to Heal from Trauma, Tragedy, and PTSD. It's on sale now. We're going to link to it on our show page. And Tim, I really appreciate you spending the time talking with us.
3: And thank you so much for having the courage to talk about this as well. I do want to let people know I have a website, drtimmurphy.com. That's drtimmurphy.com, where I will post more blogs and podcasts on Rumble and Spotify to talk more about these issues. So the book is part, but I'll continue from there. To help people heal and again thank you for your courage to talk about this because we need to let people know there's a way to heal.
2: Thank you to my guest, Dr. Tim Murphy. You can get a link to buy his new book, The Christ Cure, on our show page at newsworld.com. Newsworld World is produced by GameWitch360 and iHeart Media. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.